the, the story of Moses and, and the burning bush is well known to, to probably most of us, very well known in fact, but have you ever thought about the backstory, the story behind the story of Moses and the burning bush? It's an interesting thing because if you look at the backstory, Moses should never have been at that burning bush. He should have been dead. When Moses was born, the law of Egypt was that any baby born that was Hebrew and male had to be thrown into the river, drowned, eaten by crocodiles. That was Pharaoh's law. Moses should have been dead. Now, his mother was a God-fearing woman, and like, woman, and like most God-fearing people, she kept the law of the land. So she put Moses in the river. But the law didn't say you couldn't make a basket and cover it with tar and then put the baby in the river. And that's what she did. Pharaoh's daughter came along. She knew the law. Her father made the law. She looked at this baby, and she knew it was a Hebrew boy, and she has no choice. But she looked at Moses and said, oh my, what a baby. Miriam is there, and Miriam, the sister of Moses, says, you, you like this baby. Would, would you like me to find you a, a mother who could nurse this baby for you? Moses should have been dead. Now imagine the first time there's a family dinner in the palace of Pharaoh. And this daughter, we don't know her name, shows up with this baby. And daddy says, I, I didn't know you have a baby. That's a nice looking baby. And he pulls the blanket back and he says, this is a circumcised baby. This is a Hebrew baby. My own daughter is breaking the law. Moses should have been dead, but he wasn't. He grew up in Pharaoh's home. Got the best education of probably most people in the world that day. As an adult, he saw an Egyptian slave driver abusing some Hebrews, and he killed the slave driver. He killed a man doing Pharaoh's work for Pharaoh, getting more work out of the Hebrews. Should have been dead. People sent out to arrest him and capture him weren't successful. He outran them. And he ended up out in the land of the Midianites taking care of sheep. Now, now please go to your, your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 1 again. Well, actually, we're not. We're going to start with verse 4. But Exodus chapter 3 is page 45 if you use the, the uh, Bible that's in your pews. Second book of the Old Testament. During these 40 years that Moses had been away from Egypt, he had settled down, he got married, he started a family, and he became a shepherd. And, and now in chapter 3, as it begins, we, we see Moses at work. He's doing his job. He's taking care of the sheep. Uh, we, we can imagine that his work was routine, mundane, boring. Does that sound familiar to anybody? No? Good. Okay. Good. Now, on this day, as he's doing his routine job, he encounters something he's never seen before, a bush on fire. I think you've probably seen lots of bushes on fire. But this one is different. The fire is blazing 
but nothing's happening to the bush. It's not being consumed. It's not being burned up by this flame. And, and Moses is smart, and he says, well, that's not the way things work. That's contrary to the laws of physics. So I think I'll go check this out. So he starts to wander towards this bush to check it out. And as he's going, he hears his name called twice. Moses. Moses. Look at verse 4. Exodus 3. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. Moses didn't know it when he went to work that day, but he had a divine appointment to keep. That's the reason he was still alive. From his birth, from before his birth, God had a plan for him. And this day he had an appointment to keep. But he didn't know that. It was just an ordinary day that turned into an extraordinary meeting. And the purpose of that meeting was to commission Moses for a task. He was to be used by God to lead the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. So we see God using this burning bush as an invitation to Moses to enter into a conversation, a dialogue. He begins by getting Moses' attention. And then Moses, out of curiosity, approaches, and God gives him two instructions. And what does God say in verse 5? Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. Now, this is going to be impossible for you to imagine, but, but work with me. Imagine that I, a, a, a guy born in Oklahoma, was invited to meet the Queen, the Queen of England, the Queen of Canada. Now, I would expect someone to give me some instruction in proper protocol. I would welcome help in knowing what I should wear, how I should act, when to stand, when to sit, when to speak, when to be quiet, what things I shouldn't do in the presence of the Queen. I would welcome that instruction because the queen is, is a remarkable person, not just because of her office, but because of the way she's handled that office for the past 60 years. I, I would want to do well. But of course, God, who we worship, is infinitely greater than the queen or any human ruler that ever has lived. So when Moses is invited into this meeting with God, he needs a few instructions. How to enter God's presence. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. Both remind Moses, and they remind us, that God is profoundly and immeasurably different from us. He's separate from us. He is distinct from us. Because God is holy, and because he's perfect beyond our ability to conceive, the place where we meet him is holy. And taking off the sandals for Moses was a way that he could acknowledge the fact of God's holiness. Now, what I'd like to do with you this morning is help you look at this story and see two divine realities. God is transcendent. 
and God is imminent. Uh, we got that up there? Nope, not yet. The next one? Transcendent and imminent. Rick introduced these two words to us last Sunday. Uh, they're not new words, but they're words we don't use that often. And these two words describe God's relationship with everything that he's created. That's the beauty of these two words. They describe God's relationship with everything. He is transcendent. He is imminent. He's transcendent. He's above creation. He is distinct from it. He's separate from creation. God himself is uncreated. He has no need for his creation. He is not contingent. He doesn't require his creation for anything. His existence is dependent upon nothing outside of himself. He doesn't need what he's created. On the other hand, all of creation is contingent. We need God, because without God, nothing that we are, nothing that we know would exist. Now, we have a traditional church building. Maybe this is your first time here, you notice, maybe. We have a traditional-looking church building. We have a high-vaulted ceiling. We have stained glass. What do these, we, we, we call this sometimes sacred architecture. The purpose of this, because they've been building churches like this for hundreds and hundreds of years, is to move us towards thinking about God as transcendent. So we have a high ceiling that lifts our thoughts up towards God, who is transcendent. He's over us. He's above us. Uh, I, I, I love pipe organs. One of the things I like about this pipe organ is you walk in and you see the pipes and they, they point where? Up. That's the, the organ reminds us every time we walk in, this is not about us. What we're doing here in this room is not about us. It's about God. So, so even the architecture lifts us up to a sense of transcendence. Our God is other than what we are. He's majestic and he's beautiful. Yet at the same time, he is imminent. He is near to all that he's created. He enters the created order with sustaining power. He keeps it on course. He's involved in our world. Uh, the third time I've mentioned today that I'm an American, and I won't mention it anymore. I'm also Canadian. I've lived, for those of you that are new, I've lived over half my life here. But in, in the U.S., I constantly hear people talk about our founding fathers, how Christian they were. That's not true. A lot of the founding fathers were Christians, but the dominant ones were deist. And even Epicurean. Epicurean, not in the sense that they like to eat, but Epicureanism was a more intense form of deism. Deism said, yes, there's a God. He's a mighty God. He's a powerful God. He's a creator God. He created this world and then he left it. He has no interest in it. He does nothing with it. He does nothing for it. He has no control over it. He doesn't care. Founding fathers of the U.S. created it that way. God just doesn't care. That's not the God of the Old Testament or the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament and New Testament is imminent. He is engaged in his creation. He's engaged in our lives. He's present. So these two words, transcendent and imminent, summarize two important facts 
God is completely other than us. He's over us. He's above us. But he's also imminent. He's chosen to draw near to us, to be involved in our lives, in creation. Now, I want you to put a bookmark for just a minute in Exodus 3 and turn over to the New Testament to Acts 17. I do this only to, to try to belabor this point a little bit. I, I want to make sure that you're understanding what we mean by transcendence and imminence. And I also want you to understand they're not, well, they are philosophical terms. We're not talking philosophy. We're talking biblical truth. This is what the Bible says about God. And I want to take you to Paul's sermon that he preached at the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, to a bunch of Greek philosopher, thinker types, and merchants, and business people. It was kind of a gathering place. And he's talking to them about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about this God that they don't know. And I, I want you to notice what, what he says. Acts chapter 17, it's on page 846, by the way. He stands before this council, and he starts to talk about the statue that he sees to an unknown God. He writes, you've got this statue. I want to tell you about that God that you don't know. And he says in verse 24, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made tents or, tem or temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. That's the transcendence of God. Paul has just outlined the transcendence of God. He is above us. He is different from us. He doesn't need us, but he created us. And now he gets towards the imminence of God in the next verse. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and determine their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That's the imminence of God, the nearness of God. So the God we worship today is both transcendent, above us, and imminent, near us. The story of the burning bush shows us both of these realities. But there's more than that in the story of the burning bush. In our encounters with God, we experience both of these realities. And because God is holy, the place where we meet him is holy. Moses was on holy ground because God was there, and he was meeting with God. Now, I assume Moses took off his shoes. The story doesn't tell us, but wouldn't you? God told you to take off your shoes, you'd take off your shoes. Uh, I, I guarantee it. But he did something else. It says he covered his face. Go back to... Uh, I think, let's find it, it's verse, verse, five, verse 6. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. What, what we see in Moses is what we sometimes label holy fear. 
No, what we used to anyway. I'm not sure we use that, that phrase that much anymore, holy fear. But the covering of his face is, is an enactment of holy fear or reverence. He was afraid. Wouldn't you be? He felt small. He must have. He felt unworthy. How could he not? He felt needy. He felt awe and wonder in the face of God. And in this fear, he covers his face in the presence of God. Holy fear is that sense of wonder and awe that, that makes us feel small and, like most creatures that, small, that feel small, frightened. I, we have, when, Anna's got a little dog at home. He's about 15 pounds, and he's quite small, and he's tougher than nails. He's, he's, he's mean until he sees a big dog. He sees a big dog, and he's scared to death. Now, I don't think he's scared. I think he's smart. Smart for a little creature to be a little bit nervous around a big creature. It's smart for us to be a little bit nervous around God because of his greatness and his, and his awesome majesty and power and knowledge and wisdom and purity and perfection. It's smart to be slightly afraid. And this holy fear was Moses' natural response to the transcendence of God. So, simply put, holy fear is just that realization that the one whose presence I desire to enter, whether I'm at home in prayer or whether I'm here in church to worship, is that he's God and I'm not. And all that implies his might, his power, his immensity, his gravitas, they overwhelm us and leave us in awe and wonder. But God is not just transcendent, he's imminent. Now tell me why God is imminent, please. Anybody? He's above us. Right, that's why he's transcendent, Tina. But why is he imminent? Why is he chosen to be near us? He loves us. Exactly. That which he's created, he loves. And, and therefore, he wants to be near us. And, and he cares for all of that which he's created. And he reaches out to us, as Paul said, that we might reach out to him and, and, and find him. But God's is not a fluffy sort of love. Not the love of the guys at the uh, Academy Awards show that get the awards. I love you guys. I love you. But no, you don't. You don't know me. Don't tell me you love me. Not that kind of love. God's love is, is, is quite different. God's love is, is a fiery, burning love. And I think this is the appeal, one of the appeals of the story of the burning bush. Because we know that God's love for us is like that burning fire that would purify our lives, but yet not burn us up. That God in his love would, would, with his fire, clean out of my life all of those things that are unworthy of a follower of Jesus. Purify me, if you will, to make me like his son. Now, in our worship, I sometimes wonder if, if we haven't put too much emphasis on imminence and not enough emphasis on transcendence. Do we treat the place where we come to worship as holy ground? Not holy because it's a church or a building with stained glass window. Holy because this is where we come to meet God. 
and do business with God. Do we, do we err in that direction sometimes? Have, have we lost that sense of thinking about God's transcendence and majesty? A.W. Tozer, who I think if I remember right, I'm, I'm going to have to check out whether or not this is true from the archives, but I think he's preached here, not in this building, the older building, uh, before most of us were born, uh, a great writer and thinker, and, and has done a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. I read it with a bunch of students at the university campus a couple of years ago. And, and, and he says some really important things to us. I'd just like to give you a quote out of the first chapter. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. He's arguing that what we think about God affects everything. It affects how we worship and it affects how we live. And he said, we're inclined to think about God as we want to recreate him in our minds so that he's our kind of God. God that we can handle and control and manage. Instead of thinking about the biblical God who is never in our control and we cannot manage because he is sovereign and will do what he knows is best. We need to keep in mind right thoughts about God when we come to worship or when we're at home reading scripture or we're in the car alone praying. We need to have right thoughts about God. So this story of Moses reminds us that we have a transcendent God who is near. Now, these two divine realities that I said were seen in the story of the burning bush become even more crystal clear in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1. That is true eminence. God has come to us in the person of His Son. In Jesus Christ, God took on humanity. The Jesus we see in the Gospels is fully human, just like us. He is never any less than what we are, but he is always infinitely more than what we are because while he's fully human, he is always fully God, holy God. God's incarnation in Christ and Christ's sacrifice on the cross were the greatest displays of eminence in the history of the universe, and at the same time, the greatest act of love. God becoming human, that he might die for us as a sacrifice for our sin. And this imminence in Jesus invites us to approach God in a new way. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter God's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. This is our privilege. This is our privilege. But in this privilege, we must be careful to not forget to take off our shoes. I don't mean literally. I, I guess we've been in churches where that's literally true, isn't it? Wendy reminded me we were in a refugee camp in, in Thailand uh, of mostly Burmese Christians, and, and I was preaching, and Wendy was... We sang a duet, didn't we? That was painful <laughs> for them and us. 
But we had to take our shoes off before we'd go on the platform. That was the rule. But, but are, we, are we keeping our minds focused on who God is in a proper way? Now, now Jesus, who is God incarnate, emphasizes the eminence of God, but we don't lose the transcendence. It's not diminished. Let me show you a snapshot. During the life of Jesus on earth, there was no one probably closer to him than the Apostle John. The Apostle John leaned on his breast in that upper room at that last dinner. As Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked at John and looked at his mother, and he gave John the responsibility of caring for his mother. Nobody was closer to Jesus than John, I don't think. Now, John, later in his life as an old man, is given revelations of what's going on in heaven. We call it the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible. And in that revelation, he sees Jesus. This is the same Jesus that he hiked down the road with, that he leaned on his breast, that he watched die, and that he saw as risen. Same Jesus. He knows him well. And what does John do the moment he sees Jesus? Who remembers? He falls down like a dead man. He is struck by the transcendence of Jesus. And he falls down in awe and wonder. Jesus is still fully transcendent. Yes, he is an expression of the eminence of God. But in our worship, we also need to keep in mind the transcendence as well and balance the two. A few chapters later, the author of Hebrews, after he talks about entering boldly the presence of God, sums up our worship this way. He says, Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. The burning bush still burns. There are some powerful applications for us from this story. I want to make quickly two in closing. First, one for the church, one for us as individuals. In the early 70s, I encountered a fellow by the name of Mike Giaconelli. He was one of the founders of youth specialties. They served churches and youth pastors. And I was a youth pastor, so I made the journey to San Diego, not a bad place to go in winter, to uh, learn about youth ministry. And I picked up a lot from youth specialties. Re-encountered Mike Iaconelli in about, was it 2002, that we went back to San Diego for the National Pastors Conference. A lot bigger, a lot more prestigious. And there was Mike Iaconelli again. Right? That kind of surprised me. And he kind of looked even more like a member of the Grateful Dead rock band. Uh, Mike Iaconelli was, at that time, a pastor of a church in Yucaipa, California, that he called the slowest growing church in America. And it didn't bother him any. He just loved being a pastor. But I want to give you some quotes, from uh, some lengthy quotes, and I want you to let them soak in. We have defanged the tiger of truth. We have tamed the lion. The tragedy of modern faith is that we are no longer capable of being terrified. I would like to suggest that the church become a place of terror again. I've never heard that come up in a board meeting. 
I would like to suggest the church become a place of terror again, a place where God continually has to tell us, fear not. A place where our relationship with God is not simply a belief or a doctrine or a theology. It is God's burning presence in our lives. I am suggesting that the tame God of relevance be replaced by the God whose very presence shatters our egos into dust, burns our sins into ashes, strips us naked to reveal the real person within. That would be a scary church. The church needs to become a gloriously dangerous place where, listen to this, where nothing is safe in God's presence except us. Nothing, including our plans, our agendas, our priorities, our politics, our money, our security, our comfort, our possessions, our needs. Nothing is safe but us. Now, I'm not suggesting we try to work up some emotions of fear. I'm, I'm really not into working up emotions of any sort in church. That's not my job. Uh, anytime we try to do that, that's called manipulation. That's God's job to do that. But, but I am suggesting that we need to conform our thinking about God to Scripture, not what we want God to be like. We have to keep coming back to the God we see in the Bible and build our, our worship around Him. Now, let me now shift to the individual. I want to go back to the commissioning of Moses in closing. Moses is there to be commissioned to deliver the Israelites. God had a job for him. That's why he was still alive. Moses was resistant to the idea. Uh, this young, bold man who killed the slave driver has had his brashness tempered by getting married, having a family, raising sheep, getting older. Does that to us, doesn't it? He's not sure he's up for the job, and he says, I don't know that I can do that. God doesn't argue. God just gives him a sign and a promise. The sign is, you're going to worship on this mountain with these people. The promise is this, I will be with you, Moses. I will be with you. Now, it's in this story, as, as we alluded to last week, that God reveals his personal name. And all we have is four consonants. And, and you could pronounce it Jehovah, you could pronounce it Yahweh. Uh, we don't know, because we don't know how they pronounce those four consonants. We don't get the vowels, just the consonants. Uh, you go to the next one. Um, in this Mark Chagall, you see up there, he's shown Moses at the bush, and up there you see the consonants in Hebrew, Yahweh, W in English, W-H-W-H. God gives us that name. What's really curious is that is the same root word that God used when he said, I will be with you. And then Moses said, what do I tell him your name is? And he says, it's Yahweh. Same word. Now, we often translate that as God saying, my name means I am, or I will be, what I will be. But I think in this context where he ties it to this earlier verse, it's God saying, my, my name is, I am the one who will be with you. That's God's very name. I am with you. Doesn't that sound familiar? What is Jesus' name in the New Testament? 
one of them. Emmanuel, which means with us God. And it's the same, the with us is the same word that's used when God says, I will be with you. Jesus is with us God. And then we go to the end of Jesus' life on earth just before his ascension. He gave the church a commission. Just like Moses got a commission at the burning bush, we got a commission given to us just before the ascension of Jesus, which still applies to us today. A task to fulfill. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. That's the commission. And then we get the same promise Moses got. And be sure of this, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Moses had to accept the commission to get the promise. If we want the promise, we need to accept the commission. Now, go back to the beginning of the story. Moses met God where? Church? Nope. Met him on the job, tending sheep. God showed up. We sometimes think we have to meet God in church. What if God showed up at your workplace and you're doing your job, mundane, boring, routine, and you're doing it, and all of a sudden God speaks in a little voice that you think, that can't be me, it must be something else. And God says, that guy over in the next cubicle, go talk to him. I can't do that, God, I'm busy, I got a job. God taps you on the shoulder, go talk to that guy in the next cubicle, he needs some help. That's the commission. And you say, I don't know, I'm kind of scared to do that. I'm not used to doing this. It's kind of out of my comfort zone. God says, go to the cubicle. So you get up and go. Do you go alone? Do you go alone? Come on, somebody help me out. Do you go alone? No. No. Jesus said, I am with you. So you go into the cubicle and say, everything okay with you? Your life all right? Why? I just went wondering. Well, actually, no, it's not so good right now. And maybe you get a chance to pray with somebody. You say, could, would you like me to pray for you? If we follow the commission, God is with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though you are transcendent and awesome and mighty, and nothing will ever diminish that, you are also present and near, involved in our world, involved in our lives, involved to save us and save others. We thank you for that. And we praise you. And we pray that you will, by your Spirit, enable us daily to live out this commission to make disciples, trusting that we are not alone, that the Lord is with us. For we ask it in his name. Amen.